We'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44 and 45. Genesis 44 and 45. If you were with us last week, we saw that there was a big problem. There were no chapatis. There were no grain. There was no food. It was a disaster. Well, the people of God faced imminent starvation. The people were hungry. They were dying physically, but they were also dying spiritually. The family is a mess. Brothers are murderers, liars, adulterers. They even sold their brother into slavery. The question we've been asking ourselves in this Joseph narrative is this. How is God going to bring about his promises? That's the issue. Because God has made a promise to bring about a deliverer through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But this family has no food and they're an absolute wreck spiritually. Worldwide blessing is going to come through these people? Really? How is God going to do it? We saw some progress last week. The brothers go to Egypt to buy grain. Joseph's there. They don't know it yet. Joseph, through a series of tests, eventually asks Benjamin to come. Judah steps in with his dad. It takes full responsibility. The brothers begin to understand their guilt. There's a, a ray of hope. Well, that sets up this week's text nicely. In these chapters, we'll see three things. If you're taking notes, looks like the text could break up pretty simply into three things. Number one, a test. We'll see one big final test that Joseph gives to his brothers. Number two, a substitute. A substitute. And number three, a reconciliation. A test, a substitute, and then finally we'll see a reconciliation. Well, let's look first at the test. Like I said, this is the last of a series of tests. It's kind of the, the big one there at the end. Remember, we got 12 brothers. Joseph's been separated. Reuben is the oldest. The oldest one is supposed to lead, kind of take charge, but he doesn't act like it. He was never leading. His primary concern is for himself. He wasn't trying to protect Joseph back when they sold him into slavery. Sure, he didn't want to kill the boy right then, but he wanted to abandon him into a cistern. Remember that? That was almost a certain death of dehydration, exposure. He wasn't any better than his brothers. He says he planned to rescue his brother later, but he was just as guilty as the rest of them. Now, the brother's plan of selling him into slavery was in reality better than Reuben's abandonment plan. Well, they sold him, and even after that, Reuben didn't lead the brothers to do what's right, to confess to their father. Reuben said nothing. He just listened, listened to them. He was complicit in their deception. Now, 22 years later, Reuben is self-deceived. He could hardly contain himself when he told his brothers in last week's text, I told you so. I told you. I th- Told you it was going to end up badly. So what about today? What about now in this final test? Is Reuben finally going to step up? Will it be another brother? Will Judah continue his progress? 
Well, the brothers take Benjamin to get more grain. They pick up Simeon, who's been detained. And upon meeting Joseph, remember, there was a feast. But before they leave, Joseph gives them a final test to see if they've been changed. Look at verse 1, chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men sent away with their donkeys. Well, surely at this point after the feast, the brothers are celebrating a little bit. You know, they got plenty of grain, as much as they could carry. Simeon's back with them. They were able to get their brother and nothing bad happened to Benjamin. Maybe there's some high fives, some laughter, a little pep to their step. But Joseph has his own silver cup secretly placed in Benjamin's bag. And then in verse 4. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Well, Joseph's men overtake them, accuse them of stealing. Verse 6, When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, They, the brothers said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? The brothers are arguing. Why would we steal? We would never do that. Remember, we even brought back to you the silver that we found in our sacks last time we left. Why take more silver? Why steal? We're honest men. We're good guys. And so they say in verse 9, Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. Uh, Just so you know, this is not something you should say. This is like if a policeman pulls you over or stops you on the side of the road and says you were speeding. It's not a good idea to say, well, no, I wasn't. Uh, No, I wasn't. But if you can prove it, you can kill me and make the rest of my family slaves. It's not a good idea, especially when the policeman comes with a radar detector and says, look, here's the proof you were speeding. No, but these brothers, they're so certain. We didn't do it. We didn't do it. You can, you can, you can just kill, kill the one who did it and put all of us as slaves because we're so sure. There's no way we stole the cup. No, the brothers are, are so certain and they were right. But their comments give Joseph all the opportunity he needs for this final test. Verse 10, he said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Joseph's response is interesting. Notice he doesn't condemn whoever is guilty to death as the brothers do, but to slavery. And he says, everyone else will be innocent. It's a very interesting response. It's different from what the brothers have said. Verse 11, so each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack. 
And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. Now just imagine the scene, just one by one. They cut into Reuben's bag, no cup, into Simeon's bag, Levi, Judah, down all the way from the oldest, one by one. Nothing there, nothing in your bag, nothing in your bag, nothing in your bag, and on down to the youngest, Benjamin. Maybe the brothers are holding their breath at this point. Nine down, one to go, but it's, but it's Benjamin. Oh, please don't let it be Benjamin. Well, and then the text says the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. The sight of the cup, the brothers tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. No, Benjamin, the youngest, he was accused of stealing the silver cup. Now, in their culture, tearing of your clothes meant that you were mourning a loss. You tore your clothes like that when someone died. And what they're saying is, if we don't bring Benjamin back home to Canaan to our father, dad's going to die. Dad's going to die just like he said he was going to die if he loses his son. Someone is dead right now. They understood the ramifications of what was happening. Either Benjamin would be enslaved or killed. Dad won't make it alive. Well, here's the test. Their younger brother, the new favorite... Is now in trouble. Now, Joseph can't be certain that they're really sorry for the earlier sin, and so he puts them in a situation that equals what happened 22 years earlier, as closely as possible. Joseph is trying to see how the brothers will respond. He thinks, well, you know, they sold me into slavery. Are they going to fight for Benjamin? Have they really changed? Will they pass the test? Would Reuben finally lead? What would the other brothers do? Well, they go back to the palace. Benjamin's likely put in chains. Joseph's brought in. He's there. The ten brothers are standing there together. And verse 14, they all fall to the ground. Looks like they're admitting some corporate guilt. But now the climax of the test. The climax of the the whole Joseph narrative. What will happen when they take Benjamin away to be a slave? That's the question. That's the second point this morning. We've seen the test. The second point is the substitute. There'll be a substitute. One man is going to step up to speak on behalf of the brothers. Who is it? Is it Reuben? Simeon? Levi? Well, no, it's the fourth born again, Judah. Remember who Judah is. He's not a good guy. He's actually a bad guy. It was his idea at first to sell Joseph into slavery. It was his plan to deceive their father into thinking Joseph was dead by shredding up that coat of many colors and putting blood on it to look like Joseph was ravaged by a wild animal. Judah was a liar. He married a godless woman. His two sons were so evil that God took them in death instantly. 
Then after his wife died, he slept with a prostitute who was in fact his daughter-in-law, deceiving him. This guy is a mess. And that traitor, that liar, that adulterer, Judah, Judah steps forward and speaks. Verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Not only does Judah not argue for their innocence, Judah says, hey, hey, we're all guilty, all of us. Not just Benjamin. All 11 of us. And Joseph says, that's ridiculous. He says in verse 17, far be it from me that I should do so. No, only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up, and, go up in peace to your father. Joseph says, that's crazy. You're not all guilty. I'm not going to take all of you into slavery. Just Benjamin. He stole it. The rest of you, you can just... Go on back to your father's house in peace. Go, go live the rest of your life. You got your whole life ahead of you. It's just your brother. So what are the brothers going to do? They sold Joseph into slavery. Will they leave Benjamin to be a slave? Makes sense, right? They've done it before. Get rid of daddy's favorite for a second time. It would be easy. It looks like Benjamin did steal the cup. The second in command of Egypt, Joseph, is calling the shots. They've already left the brother behind. The scenario is almost too good to be true. I mean, if you're a bunch of treacherous, lying, murderous brothers, and Joseph hands you this opportunity on a silver platter, I mean, the brothers can go free. They can be free of favorite brother 2.0 and just leave him. But instead, Judah gives one of the most heartfelt speeches in all of Scripture. It's the longest speech in Genesis, one of the most passionate speeches in all of Scripture. Just picture the scene for a moment that ten brothers probably lined up one next to another. Benjamin probably already taken there to the side and in chains, arrested because he stole the cup. There's Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph yet, but Joseph's there in his Egyptian clothing, standing in front of them, the prime minister, the governor, the one with all the power. And Judah, the traitor. Judah, the liar. Judah, the adulterer, says these words, verse 18. O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, 
Let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah. The lying adulterer, traitor, gives us the most heart-melting speech we could read. Judah begs for the life of his brother for the sake of his father. Fourteen times Judah mentions his father. And who's Judah thinking about in the speech? Dad. Benjamin. The rest of his brothers. God. Not himself. And this is no painless bargain. Judah is saying, take me. Put me in jail. I'll be a slave. Judah knows that his father's life is bound up in Benjamin's and he offers himself up for the boy because of his dad's love for him. 22 years ago, he watched his dad filled with anguish at the thought of Joseph's death. But now he'll do anything he can in order to never see his father suffer that way again. 
Also in these two chapters, the word brother is used 21 times. But only when Judah steps up do we see what a true brother does. Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. Judah says, I'll be the substitute. Now this is different from a substitute teacher who takes the place of a full-time teacher for one day. It's different from in football when a substitute might come in late in a match and play for a few minutes. Now Judah is sentencing himself to be a slave for life. Never to see his father again. Never to be with his brothers again. He's willing to do that so that his father could have Benjamin back. This is absolutely breathtaking. If you're going to put one of us in slavery, let it be me. Twenty-two years ago, Judah was there when Joseph was screaming and crying and begging for help in the bottom of that cistern. And now, there's Judah himself, perhaps screaming and crying and definitely begging for Benjamin's life to be spared. I'll take the punishment. Take me. Now, friends, does this remind you of what our elder brother did for us? Judah is the first person in the Bible who willingly offers his own life for another. But his descendant, the one who would indeed come from his line, Jesus, would offer himself as a sacrifice and a substitute for his people. This Messiah would be known as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah prefigures what Jesus would do for us. He says, take my life for his. Take me instead. No, we need this ultimate substitute because the bad news for all of us is that every single one of us has sinned against God. But for the Christian, the good news is that Jesus, God in the flesh, God came to us, endured God's own wrath in our place, shedding his blood on the cross as a payment for our sins. Christ was our substitute. And Judah here is providing himself as a substitute. Well, the question in our text, though, is how is Joseph going to respond? They're face to face. He's been testing them for a period of perhaps two years, concealing his identity. And now we're here at the apex of the narrative. What will this offer of substitution accomplish? Well, that's the third point this morning. We've seen a test. We've seen Judah provide himself as a substitute. And finally, third, we'll see a reconciliation. Now, this substitute does a lot. We'll see a reconciliation. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. Joseph just loses it. 
He can't take it. He weeps. He kicks his attendants out so they don't see him, so they don't hear him. But it doesn't matter because he cries so loudly, the whole household hears it. He's crying hysterically at this point. 22 years of emotions, they're they're just pouring out. The fear, the betrayal, the anger, the sadness, the loss. 22 years just flooding out of him right then. Everyone hears it. You see, with these tests, Joseph wasn't just messing around with his brothers. In fact, he wasn't messing around with them at all. He wasn't playing games. He wasn't being mean. He gave them these tests because he loves them. He wanted so badly to be reconciled to them. He wanted them so badly to be changed and to be repentant. He confronts them with the very same sin to see what's going on in their heart and to bring them to that point of repentance. Joseph's heart is so melted by Judah and his brother's response that he can't hold it together anymore. And he says to his brothers in verse 3, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But at that, his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Can you imagine? I don't think the brothers were ever expecting to hear those three words. I am Joseph. The brothers probably thought they saw a ghost. That word dismayed actually has the idea of a paralyzing fear that you would sometimes experience in war when you feel like your enemy is about to capture you. It was sheer terror. Wait, what? You're Joseph? Wait a minute. What? They could never have imagined. Joseph? Well, consider Joseph's response. Is he going to just let him have it? Hey guys, why did you sell me into slavery? Would he just pester them with 20 questions? Play that game for a few moments? Would he accuse them? Would he reveal any bitterness? Hey guys, why didn't you listen to my, to my, to my begging? Why did you sell me? That was, that was mean. Do you remember me crying out? But the first thing out of Joseph's mouth, hey guys, how's dad? How's he doing? Is he alive? Is he well? (laughs) The brothers are just terrified. They couldn't say anything. Joseph breaks the awkward silence. He says, okay guys, come near to me. Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph. I really am. It's me, the one you sold into slavery. Joseph calls him close. That must have been scary. The brothers are thinking, oh, what's he going to do? Must have had a little sick feeling in their stomachs as they came close. But Joseph was just confirming his identity. He was saying, hey, it really is me. I was back then with you when you sold me into slavery. That was me. Before they could be too alarmed, Joseph graciously keeps talking. The brothers are still silent. Joseph doesn't like the awkward silence. And he says in verse 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to persevere life, to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. 
And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then after all of that, He fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. It's another remarkable speech. And then finally, after all that, after Joseph's big grand revelation, after all the hugging and the kissing, finally, after all that, his brothers talked with him. They're in shock. Joseph doesn't rub it in. He doesn't blame them for putting him into slavery during the prime years of his life. He doesn't blame them for it. Instead, he says something remarkable. But God, but God, but God, God did this. God sent me here on a mission to feed millions of people and to save lives. And to save your life, my family, God orchestrated all of this to provide for you. To carry on the promises that he made to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is bringing about his promises. Joseph has an incredible perspective on the sovereignty of God. Now on one level, of course the brothers are culpable for their sin, This doesn't excuse anything that they did. It was their fault. Joseph even says, you meant it for evil. They were totally responsible. But Joseph also knows that God divinely orchestrated everything. All parts of the Joseph narrative show us that God's purposes are ultimately fulfilled through and in spite of human actions and sin. Bible scholar Gordon Wenham says it this way, God controls all affairs as is clear in scripture, and yet yet at the same time, human responsibility is equally affirmed in scripture. Though Genesis emphatically states that God uses the sins of Joseph's brothers for good, it nowhere excuses their sins or pretends they can be forgotten. Rather, they needed to be acknowledged and repented of. No, the brothers are culpable for their sin and they needed to repent as they're doing. But it is the divine sovereignty of God that undergirds everything we read in Genesis. It's the sovereignty of God that that oversees everything in the life of Joseph and in this narrative. Joseph gets it when he says, God sent me to preserve life. 
Friends, Joseph's understanding of the sovereignty of God enabled him to trust God even in those dark times. Let me say that again. It's so important. Joseph's understanding of the sovereignty of God, meaning that God is in control over every square centimeter on this earth. His understanding of that enabled him to trust God even in the dark times. Even in the confusing moments. Friends, don't forget this. Don't ever forget this. That even now God is doing one million things in your life that you don't see. And even when you don't understand what 999,999 of those things are, even when you can't see the majority of those things, you've got to keep going. You've got to know that our God is trustworthy. You can't give up walking by faith because you can't see what God is doing. You've probably heard about the fire across the street from this hotel this past week. Right across the street, three buildings and an apartment block burned for five hours. I was just getting off the train after work in the office and maybe just moments before I got off the train, the fire erupted. I've never never seen such a big fire, never been so close to such a big, massive flame. Hundreds of people lost everything, passports, papers, clothes, personal belongings, The firefighters were shouting off for people to to jump off the roof and to jump out of windows. So thankful for many of our church members who went out to encourage those fire victims this past week to bring them food, to pray with them. Alvin Alvin Latonua drove over 30 displaced men and women this week to a new location in Hor Al-Ans to try to get them housed there. Many Redeemer members went out there two nights ago to bring food and water and blankets and pillows and electric burners and Bibles and other items. Now as I look at that building, as I see that building, every time I take the train in or out of town, even yesterday with my eight-year-old daughter Eliza, as we looked at that building and as we talked about the lives of those people who've been displaced, I said to my daughter, sweetheart, it may look hopeless for them, but it's not. It may look like they've lost everything, but it's not true. Because friends, God works out all things together for the good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purposes. Oh friend, if you're here and you lost everything in that fire this past week, though it is hard, you are not without hope. God is not absent right now, but very present. This is not the time to get bitter at your situation or at any person, but to turn to Jesus. This is what Joseph does. This is what Joseph has done for 22 years of his life. He understood God's sovereign grace. And even now, he doesn't want his brothers to feel bad. Now, I'll be honest. In my flesh, when people hurt me, When people deceive me, when my feelings are hurt, I want them to know about it. I want to rub it in even just a little bit. I want them to know just a little taste of the pain I went through. That's my initial fleshly response. But Joseph's response is the right one. Seeing God's hand over everything, seeing the sovereignty of God keeps us from getting bitter at anyone. 
It keeps us from lashing out in anger at a difficult boss or a workmate. Understanding the sovereignty of God allows us to be patient with difficult friendships. It keeps us persevering in the most difficult physical pain and anguish. And when a fire burns up all of our belongings and we lose everything, the sovereignty of God is the comfort we need to know that God is not a distant God, but that God is with us. That he's never far away. Or maybe you're you're here and you've sinned so badly, you don't think you can be forgiven. You think because of what you've done, God really is distant. Maybe you're despairing over bad choices. Maybe you're torn up by grief or, or remorse. You think you're beyond reconciliation to God. But even in our bad choices, God is working. God's hand directs through all our guilt and all our sin. Understanding our sinfulness shouldn't lead us to run from God, but to run to God. Understanding the depth of our sin should not leave us feeling separated from God, but it should lead us to run as fast as we can to a God who could forgive us and to a God who could reconcile us to him. It should drive us to repentance and gratitude for his great grace. Sins confessed bring about reconciliation. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're engulfed in some unrepentant sin, it doesn't matter what it is. You've seen in this, in this chapters in Genesis, murder, lying, adultery, you name it, these brothers were involved in it. And so friend, it doesn't matter what sin you've been engulfed in, whatever it is, run to God. Run to Him Ask forgiveness from God. Ask forgiveness from anyone that you've sinned against. I urge you to do it today and to enjoy reconciliation with our almighty God. That's what's happening here in our text. Joseph and his brothers, 22 years later, reconciled. The brothers are given a place to live in Egypt. And Pharaoh even gets word of it, and he wants to give Joseph's family the best of everything. He even offers better than what Joseph has offered. He says, give your brothers and your father the very best. Joseph gives them new clothes. I I love this. I don't know if you noticed it as you're studying it, but Joseph gives them new clothes. The word used here for clothing suggests a festive or a celebratory clothes. Remember that coat of many colors that his that the brothers stole and destroyed. Now they're all dressed in festive clothing together, not just a favored brother. Maybe this is another sign of reconciliation, I don't know, but I love that picture of Joseph giving his brothers clothes. And then Joseph sends them on their way, but not without a rather humorous instruction in verse 24. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Joseph knows his brothers, doesn't he? Hey guys, on the way back, don't fight. Don't get into any trouble. Come on guys, be nice to each other. I know how you are. Now in all seriousness, maybe he said that so they wouldn't put blame on each other. They wouldn't argue about what happened. They sure had a lot to talk about on the way home, didn't they? 
Remember, they've lied to their father for 22 years. What must this trip home have been like? Well, guys, yep, there's some good news to tell dad. How are we going to tell dad? Well, we don't know exactly what happens, but they go back and they tell dad. Dad is stunned. He doesn't even believe them. It's too good to be true. But then when he saw the chariots that Joseph had sent, he believes. He wants to go back to see his son. The family will be reconciled. We can see the pathway that God will keep his promises through this family, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and by means of Joseph, through Judah. Friends, this is an amazing true story. But as I've said, it all points to the greatest true story of reconciliation. As Judah's substitutionary sacrifice was necessary for the reconciliation of the family, so was Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice necessary for you and I to be reconciled to God. Judah points to Jesus because he steps forward and offers his life to reconcile his family. But Jesus actually lost his life so we could be reconciled to God. Jesus lost his relationship with the Father. He was punished. He took the penalty that you and I deserved. And there is reconciliation. We see that pictured here in this chapter. This is what God does for us through Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes to the cross after the betrayal of a friend. Just like Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. Jesus was accused of, his, of actions he didn't do. Just like Joseph was accused of actions he didn't do. Jesus suffered and died for others. Just like Judah was willing to suffer. And if need be, be a substitute for his brother. Three days later, Jesus rises. What does he proclaim? Forgiveness, like Joseph. Oh, in this narrative, Judah was a portrait of the substitute, the one who would take our place, and Joseph is the portrait of the reconciliation. And friends, for those of us who are reconciled, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we will one day see Jesus face to face. That just like Judah looked Joseph in the eye, you and I will look Jesus right in the eye. And if, like Judah, we repent of our sins, Jesus will respond to us like Joseph responded to Judah. With forgiveness and with reconciliation. Friend, you must be reconciled to God. If you aren't reconciled to him, consider the good news that you can be. It's offered up to all. There is a substitute. But you must repent of your sin and believe in Jesus for salvation. For Jesus to be your substitute, you must acknowledge your sin. You must acknowledge your rebellion against the holy God. And you must trust in Jesus to save you. No good work to be done. No, not one of us could be good enough to earn it on our own. You must trust in Jesus to be your substitute. And he will save you. If you haven't done this, take time today to consider this good news. 
And even now, as the believing community moves to take part in communion, keep thinking about this as we look at this visual display of the gospel. Let's turn our hearts to communion even now as we conclude this message. Communion is one of the two ordinances of the church. I mentioned in the beginning of the service that communion is a visual picture of the good news of the gospel. Baptism is the other ordinance. Both of these point us to see a picture of what God has done for us. The bread signifying the perfect life Jesus lived and the cup symbolizing his blood that was shed for us. But the Bible gives us instruction and a warning as to who should take part in this ordinance. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 27 through 29 says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. If you've repented of your sins and you believe in the same gospel you've heard me preach here today, we invite you to participate in this meal together with us. If not, we'd encourage you to let the bread and to let the cup just pass you by in a moment. If you do profess faith in Jesus and are joined this church, but you're engaged in some unrepentant sin, we also urge you, just let the bread, let the cup pass you by. Scripture warns that there are severe consequences for those who take part in this meal, which symbolizes our unity in Jesus, while at the same time you're holding on to some sin that divides you from the body of Christ. Use this time instead to repent of your sin, to ask God for forgiveness, and to seek the unity that comes through Christ's forgiveness and grace. Well, before we take part, let's take a moment of two in silent reflection, looking over our own hearts to see if we might take part in the Lord's Supper in a manner worthy of the gospel. As the musicians head to the front and the servers to the back, let's go to our God in prayer. Let's pray. Father, prepare our hearts to seek you. Let the bread and let the cup be nourishing to our souls today. With the cross of Christ, be to us the wisdom of God and the power of our almighty Savior as we meditate on the promise of eternal life. Father, thank you for this substitute. Thank you that you have made a way for eternal life for us. Would we exalt Jesus today and in all areas of our lives in the week and months to come? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.